The Near Futurist, a podcast with Guy Clapperton. Hello, and thanks for downloading The Near Futurist, a show presented by me, Guy Clapperton. Today, I'm continuing the theme from a few episodes ago, the future of learning. First, the usual stuff about who you're listening to. I'm Guy Clapperton, a technology journalist, event MC, and media trainer with over 30 years experience. You might have heard me or seen me on the BBC occasionally, read some of my books, including the new one, The Extraordinary MC, or seen me in The Guardian, New Statesman Tech, and elsewhere. In normal times, I go to a lot of conferences, currently I sit here and attend virtual ones, and hear futurists talking about their forecasts about the decades to come. I'd rather use my 30 years experience as a commentator to discuss what's likely to happen later this year, early next, and the action we need to take now. So a friend and I came up with the near futurist concept. Do have a look at my website at nearfuturist.co.uk where you'll find more episodes and information on what we're about. If you'd like to book me as a speaker or MC for your technology event, virtual or otherwise, depending on how long term, please check the showreel on the site and drop me a line, guy at nearfuturist.co.uk. That's nearfuturist as one word, or get in touch with my agent, whose details are of course also on the site. If you like what you're hearing on this podcast, please do consider leaving a review on the iTunes store or wherever you download from. And if you're new to the show, you're of course very welcome. Actually, if you're not new to the show, you're still welcome. I don't know why I always say that. So much for blatant self-promotion. My guest today is a business founder, executive, investor in education, technology, services, digital, and media. He has built, scaled, and invested in teams of global markets. As you might expect, as head of his company, Sparks, he is a regular speaker and panelist at global education and technology forums, or at least he will be when they come back. His name is Dan Sandu. Dan, welcome. Well, thank you very much for having me on, Guy. You're more than welcome. Okay, let's start with the basics. Let's just pretend for the sake of argument that I nicked the entire intro from your LinkedIn profile, more or less cut and paste. Could you flesh it out a bit? Tell us about yourself. So I started off life working in finance um, as a wee accountant, rapidly realized that I wanted to get involved in running and building businesses, ended up working uh, fairly globally out in Hong Kong for a bit, out in India and then across Europe, uh, in Eastern Europe, Romania, Poland, and ended up building a number of businesses in technology uh, in the UK and overseas. And about 10 years ago, um, started investing in initially, but then running education and education technology businesses, which I found absolutely fascinating, given the impact one could have. What was it about uh, the education sector and specifically that uh, appealed to you? I suppose uh, having built a number of very scaled up large uh, technology businesses, which were great, and they were great fun. I have have nothing wrong about building great businesses uh, which don't make an impact. Um, I realized all that experience I'd built over the years could be really useful in what was then a very nascent sector in education technology. And the more I looked at it from the outside, the more I realized that it was something I could actually talk to my children about. um, Because... People were forgetting that it becomes very personal and education technology is full of businesses started by people who did it for a very personal reason, to make a direct impact on their children, their family. And I think that's what appealed to me the most because I was seeing it every day, not as an educator myself or not as recently come through education, but the impact of good and bad education on, on my children. And so it was quite personal. And the more I got involved in it, the more I realized that it it actually made a dramatic impact if you got it right. And that was my frustration at the outset, getting it right. 
Tell me about the contribution that Sparks tries to make. What problem are you trying to solve? Actually, tell me about the company's services overall. That's put in context. Sparks um, started a number of years ago with a very single-minded mission to really improve the life opportunities of individuals around the world, focused particularly on improving mathematics. It's very single-minded, improving numeracy skills globally. And that mission about supporting and enabling teachers while motivating students still underpins everything we do. Spark started off very much around undertaking detailed and significant research rather than running to the market with a half-baked product. The reality being it's education. And in education, you can't pretend that you're selling a can of beans and it looks pretty and get it out there. It has to work. You have to undertake the research. You have to make sure you can demonstrate the evidence. So Sparks' ethos is around research-based and evidence-based delivery of mathematics. We work with schools. We are out in schools um, across the Sparks family. We are in over 15, close to 1,500 schools across the UK in the secondary space, providing support for teachers to enable them to set homework um, automatically for their students and providing support for schools in supporting the delivery of mathematics in a classroom environment. And for us, it's all around making sure that we can demonstrate every day that we make life easier for the teachers um, and drive more engagement with the students. Now, of course, we're under very particular circumstances uh, at the moment. I'm very much hoping this next question will sound really dated after just a few months. Uh, we can but hope. But uh, at the moment, of course, you're not in the classroom because nobody's in the classroom. Uh, is this something that translates into the virtual world? Is this, uh, so how have you found the transition between you know, the schools closing down and uh, the whole coronavirus isolation thing? I think um, it's, it goes without saying, and you know, everyone's used these words, unprecedented, once in a lifetime, et cetera, et cetera. This is really tough. I mean, if you just take it to the concept of um, the children who, whose life has been disrupted, who have a regular pattern being disrupted, the teachers who deliver face-to-face -face teaching who are now having to deliver remotely, this is not easy whichever way you cut it. From a perspective of education technology, yes, there's a, a scramble of people providing uh, remote tools, ho ho hoping if they throw enough things at the wall, something will stick. What we've done is been partly really understanding, having had schools internationally who were shut down a number of weeks ago before the UK shut down, we were able to understand how this was affecting our students and our teachers. Because the reality is we wanted to make sure whatever we provided was going to make a difference. Of course, we've had a really significant spike in the usage across the Sparks offering, and it's only you know, day number five of the first week of shutdown. But our priority has been to support the teachers and learners through this process, and to make sure we bear in mind, before we ever get to the proposition, how we ensure we're looking after the well-being of the teachers and learners. Because that's something not to forget in a remote environment where the teacher doesn't have face-to-face -face interaction with the students. So what we've been doing is a number of things. Firstly, we've been making sure that we're supporting the teachers, providing them lots of information, working with them to understand how they're going to deliver the remote learning. We've spoken to the Department for Education. We've been in there a number of times to make sure we understand what their drivers are. We're focusing on how we can support the parents and carers as well, providing them information. 
the virtual classroom we've set up, the Sparks virtual classroom, is already in over 35 countries as of this morning. And we've scaled significantly in schools over 35 countries. And what we've committed to is offering that free to those schools that have shut down to make sure there's no interruption to that learning process. But as you said, it's early days. You know, so far we know it's working and it's delivering great success. But it's early days. It's week number one. Will the motivation continue? Will the students uh, continue to have that involvement in the learning process with the teachers over the next few weeks? Let's see how it develops. We're watching it every day. Uh, we're making sure our platforms are stable because obviously having three, four, five times the number of users immediately ha has a significant impact. But the reality is we know, as you said, everything is moving in a fairly rapid manner. And what we're trying to do is making sure in this scenario when the teachers and the schools are being offered lots of platforms, uh, we're being very honest with the teachers of what good looks like. And we've always supported what we do with very, very strong evidence. That makes a lot of sense. And uh, just to put it in context for people who download this or uh, stream this episode later in the year or perhaps in future years, because people do still uh, stream old episodes, uh, we're talking on the uh, 27th of uh, March 2020. The context is that uh, on Monday in the UK, where uh, this podcast is based, the Prime Minister effectively put the UK into uh, lockdown for three weeks and then position to be reviewed. So that's just for context so that people know exactly wh when and where we're, uh, we're talking. I'm interested that you mentioned that the uh, Department of Education though in the UK, because leaving aside these uh, uh, circumstances, which we can only hope are uh, temporary, the UK government did announce its uh, education technology strategy in April, I believe, EdTech strategy as they called it, and you've been somewhat critical. I mean, what was the problem with it? Um, I think it's, it's not a matter of being critical. I think the as aspirations and sentiment of the strategy are fantastic. There, there needs to be a, not only an EdTech strategy, but an EdTech charter. I think what I wanted to make sure that there was enough focus that the schools had the right level of rigorous assessment of the EdTech product. All EdTech doesn't work all the time. And I think it's a reality check that people need to have of how to assess great education technology. So I've been very vocal about the need for strong evidence, strong ed tech evidence, which supports the use of technology within schools. Uh, because, you know, the reality is, if you take the, the analogy of um, medicine, a shiny box of medicine doesn't make it better. A good advertisement in medicine doesn't uh, make you drop paracetamol for ABC drug. You look as a parent, as a patient, look for evidence. You know, we know paracetamol works because there was years of research and there's evidence. We need the same rigor in education. And what we did to ensure that, and I'm saying this in the context of having spoken to lots of teachers and what teachers and schools have come back with, because they know in the context of um, the impact on schools, there's only a limited pot of funds. Once they spend that money, it goes away. They can't get it back again. And if they buy poor education technology products, which could do as much damage as good, it's actually a failing on our part. So what we did uh, earlier this year, as uh, sort of founded the EdTech Evidence Group, which was basically a group of nine EdTech companies who set a benchmark for what good looks like, set a benchmark for how we drive great evidence and how we encourage schools um, to look for evidence have sustained high level of quality evidence, improve the evidence gathering across the ed tech sector, 
support the schools to understand how they can assess that evidence and improve communications to schools on how they gather that evidence. So edtechevidence.com is a website to go to. Sparks has been very fortunate and I'm, I'm very privileged to have been helped found that group and we will make sure that word spreads. But the aim is to make sure that there's transparency and of evidence and that's a priority for schools and ultimately, of course, for learners. Now, that sounds laudable and excellent, but I'm mindful that uh, you're talking about evidence rightly, but uh, also that uh, EdTech itself is only a few years old, really, at least in the um, sense that we mean it at the moment. I appreciate there's been, you know, when I went to my daughter's school a while ago, there was electric whiteboards. I was just staggered, and that's probably a really archaic term in the first place. So the current possibilities of education technology are relatively new. So where is this evidence coming from? How are you gathering it? I love the example, uh, the smart whiteboards. It's a, it's a That's great the example. Thank you, yes. It, it reminds me of a great story, you know. So, some whiteboards and some of the, some of the therefore, the ed tech is, is about as good, and that, good as having a blackboard without a piece of chalk. So you've got to get the balance right. There's no point putting technology out there unless there's evidence. And the evidence comes from engagement. From Spark's perspective, you know, we not only undertake research and we publish our research, we publish the research that we partner with and we publish it on our site, sparks.co.uk. We publish our research. We undertake evidence by working with schools over a number of years, not a few weeks, not a couple of terms, but a number of years. We've been very interested, and literally it is up to different ed tech companies to take different approaches, but we've been interested about engagement of students. How do students engage with maths? How do students improve their learning of maths? Not necessarily about whether using Sparks drives better grades. That's up to the teacher in the school. That's what they do. What we do is make sure that the students are engaging and enjoying mathematics, and we can demonstrate that by usage of Sparks itself, in some instances, for example, last year, we worked with some really um, poor performing schools who were in deprived areas uh, of coastal cities where prior to using Sparks, less than 20% of the children had done any homework in mathematics. By the end of the first academic year, over 95% of those children had done one hour of maths homework every week. Now, that's not because we do gamification or colourful this, that and the other to undermine the value of education or trying to gamify it excessively it's because it's done on a basis of really solid pedagogical understanding of what makes a difference how do you take that student on a journey and what research have you undertaken to make sure you understand how that student gets better and it is it is not the case across the the industry that people undertake it with that level of passion or rigor I'm just wondering what uh, classrooms, uh, you know, just taking the Sparks element uh, uh, out of it, although you've been very independent and uh, not pushed your company, I appreciate that. But what do classrooms need to be doing now, or rather when they come back? What do classrooms and teachers need to be doing right now to uh, make sure they engage their kids, technology aside? It's really important for um, teachers and students and parents to realise this is a pivotal moment. And, and uh, I'm, I'm glad guy that you time checked it earlier because I think that's really important. March 2020 will be a pivotal point in global education. Uh, I'm sure of it. This is the first time across as, as far back as I know about education that globally there has been a change in the way regular daily education has been delivered. 
1.3 billion people in India are in lockdown. Um, just do the numbers there, 56% of that population is under 25. You know, I can estimate that maybe 25 to 30% of that population is of school age. So you have three to 500 million children in India not going to school for the next three weeks. Now, that changes what education is about. And it's really important to bear in mind that that will change people's perception of education. It will change people's perception of what the school does and what the parent does. It will change people's perception of how technology can do good or how it can be interfering and not do good or how it may just not work and crash at scale. So I think this is a, a big shift. I wish I could tell you very clearly how when we go back to schools, everything will come back to normal. But it won't. People have seen a different way of delivering education. Teachers will know that there's more opportunities to use education technology. But I think my challenge with that is going to be one of caution, absolute caution. And, you know, I've been very vocal publicly and in, in what I've written about and what I talk about in platforms about smoke and mirrors. But be very careful about how technology and education and technology is projected to the market as in some cases the nirvana solution of all things it's not you have to be very careful the teacher plays a pivotal role in this and the teacher um, and i hope for many generations to come the teacher is not replaced in that form um, we hear lots of talk about technology being used or to replace teachers we we at sparks use statistics we use great technology we use great ai but we don't put that at the core of the offering they are great enablers there are a lot of ai based products in education which seem to ram that down people's throat as as the end game it's not it's an enabler we keep our simple we make sure it's totally explainable there are no black boxes the teacher needs to know what comes out the other end and that's really important that's really important to make sure we don't bamboozle the teachers or the learners or the parents in the current world with technology which doesn't tell them why. Why did Guy get this piece of homework? Why is Guy doing good? Why does Guy need help? As opposed to that great, I think, TV comedy where the computer says, hope that never happens because that takes us away from good pedagogy and understanding how education can make a difference rather than it just being another commodity. Now, you've raised the issue of parents there. I'm not an educationalist. I am a parent. She's a young adult. She's still in the student system, but she's no longer at school. But there are a lot of parents out there who may well be thinking, this is just about to get an awful lot more complicated. How do they even start to understand, A, what's going on in the world at the moment? And I appreciate we're all struggling to understand that uh, and to take it in. Um, but also, you know, uh, when the child gets back into school and there's all these different uh, forms of education coming to them, how do parents manage to identify what good looks like, if I may throw your phrase back at you? I think edtechevidence.com, um, that website, you know, we, we were just getting going when we've had to pause everything for, for coronavirus. We will start publishing what um, evidence there is with edtech providers. Um, there are a number of platforms online which help parents understand what good looks like. They need to make sure they can ask that question not the anecdotal, you know, so-and-so used it, it felt quite good. But what is the evidence? Where has this uh, proposition being used? Which school? How have they delivered? What's the success been? 
And they should look at those websites, not for um, whether the, the, the product looks engaging and quite gamified or pretty, but does that website publish research and evidence on how this works? Now, I'm committed to making sure that we have more and more edtech providers join the edtech evidence group. I'm committed that we ensure that the parents are equally involved in understanding that. We in AdSparks, it's quite interesting. We, you know, we always look at the three corners of the triangle, the student, um, the teacher, and the parent. When we set homework, for instance, for, for children in algebra, say, the parent will get an email explaining to the parent what algebra homework they will get today, and a video for the parents to remind them about algebra. Math is one of those subjects where parents, more often than not, say those magic words, I don't do maths, I can't do maths. And therefore, that does flow on to the children as well. So yes, I think the parents need to understand that the world is changing, and the parents may need to take a degree more responsibility they've been used to, where previously they've sort of may have outsourced that to the schools. The parents will realize that in the devices that their children have or in the devices they have at home, there is opportunities for learning all the time. And I suppose the reality will dawn on parents as it dawns to everyone that learning never ends. This is a great example when, when the GCSE and A-level um, exams have been deferred and, and cancelled. My middle son and my youngest son are doing A-levels and GCSEs, or were doing A-levels and GCSEs. And it's occurred to them that exams are important, but lifelong learning continues. Exams are just a gatepost. I think that'll be a great process of learning that everything is being geared up this end of year exam, rather than realizing that learning is an ongoing process. This is a marathon, not a sprint. I think if that mindset starts changing, I think parents will realize that they have in their hands through devices, technology, and you know, what they're going through right now, the ability to provide their students with long-term learning tools, which are outside just preparing for an exam. That makes a lot of sense. Okay, Dan, we are uh, moving towards the end of our time. My usual last question is to ask where people can find out more about you and your organization. You've mentioned a couple of websites so far. Perhaps you could repeat them just so the uh, listeners have got the hang of, uh, of them. And uh, are you on Twitter at all? You know, where can people get in touch if they're interested? Absolutely. My, my Twitter handle is at Dan Sandu. That's D-A-N-S-A-N-D-H-U. Website for Sparks is sparks.co.uk. Um, and we have a, a Twitter handle as well. The uh, evidence-based learning uh, site you mentioned? The edtechevidence.com is the website of the organisations which are gathering evidence in edtech. Excellent. Dan Sandu of Sparks, thank you very much for joining me. Pleasure, Guy. Thank you very much for having me on. And many thanks to you for listening. That was the Near Futurist podcast with me, Guy Clapperton. Don't forget to have a look at the website at www.nearfuturist.co.uk. I'll be back in two weeks' time as always. Goodbye.